Hey listeners, welcome to this episode where I've been up early to meet Rupert Bedell, Vice President of EMEA Marketing at American Express. In this episode, he gives a personal and honest perspective on B2B marketing and opens the door to the behind the scenes of one of the world's largest financial service corporations. Right, on with the show. From Studio Rue, I'm Yessie Fram, and this is Bosses for Breakfast, the show where I talk with entrepreneurs, creatives, and inspiring visionaries about their successes and their failures around advertising and what they're bringing forward today. Hey, Rupert. Hello. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm, I'm excited to meet you. It's the Thank first you. time. Yeah. So it's a breakfast show. I would love to know a bit more about your morning routine. Do you have one? And has it always been the way it is today? Cool. Yeah. Great to be here, Jesse. Thanks for inviting me on. My morning routine, uh, I do have a routine. It's not something I've designed myself. I have uh, three kids, three young boys. The eldest one is nine. The youngest one is two. They create my routine for me. The two-year-old will be got out of bed. He'll come in and poke me in the eye and do various things to try and get me out of bed. Usually him and the seven-year-old need their breakfast early on, so I'll do that. And gradually everybody surfaces. I'm in a strange place at home where everybody seems to want me to make their breakfast, to get them ready. I think I guess I'm around in the morning more and uh, the kids kind of latch on to that. So I have a hard time kind of getting out of the quicksand of family to get myself ready and out the door. So, uh, yeah, the morning usually starts about 6 a.m. when uh, that process starts. Normally, I'm not out of the house before 8. I'm not very good at uh, <laughs> getting through that at pace. Everybody wants a slightly different breakfast with different things on it. And, yeah, and then just getting everything ready. My wife works as well, so she's normally getting up and out. This morning, she did a very good job of just bypassing all of the family stuff and getting <laughs> out the door, and I was slightly envious. And then we have a nanny who arrives about 7.30 to start to take things on. So at that point, I'm generally trying to get out the door. I don't really have any kind of time for exercise at that or, or to even think about work at that point. Cycling to work is something I'm very keen on. Um, I live in Wimbledon and I work in Victoria. So that's a pretty handy commute. It's about 25 minutes door to door. And I'm a big advocate of using cycle paths and different networks to get to work. Obviously, London is a busy place. And if you're cycling to work, the one downside of that is that you're on very busy roads. I had an accident a couple of years ago that definitely changed my perspective on cycling into work. Much as I love it, you know, there is a dangerous element to it as well. I'm lucky enough to take the Wandle Trail and then the Thames Trail, which keeps me off the roads for 95% of the time. And it's, if the weather's decent, it's an absolutely beautiful way to come into work. On the days that I do cycle, I come in with a fairly fresh mind. I'll get into the office about 8.30, grab a shower. Ideally, I'd love to be in much earlier than that. I'm good in the mornings and that's a nice time to get in and process stuff. But well, that would require not making anybody breakfast and not seeing my kids. And, you know, that's one of those things that you're not really willing to compromise. So no, that works for me. And then I'm in upstairs in my office about 10 to 8 or 10 to 9 rather. And then in a bit of a panic yeah. for my nightclub <laughs> meeting and then remembering I've agreed to do a podcast this morning and various <laughs> things like that. So, yeah, so I'm fairly lightning preparation from that point forward. But it, it generally works. Oh, amazing. I like the cycling too. It's a good way of exercising a little bit. 
So tell us a bit more about yourself and your career path. You are the VP here at American Express, and that's very impressive. But where did you start? What has your journey been? Sure. Well, I'm Irish originally, as you might have picked up, hence I talk fast. I grew up in Dublin, uh, a place called Malahide, just north of Dublin there. A lovely kind of seaside town, very kind of idyllic place to grow up. I was one of four. I studied as an engineer in university, not because I necessarily wanted to be an engineer, but that seemed to be the career advice at the time. If you don't know what you want to do, you should get an engineering degree and that's a great foundation and you can go on from anywhere. I found that hard. I'm generally okay with numbers, but uh, I wouldn't say I'm a particular maths boffin. It's a heavy degree, you know, it's nine to five. There's a lot of coursework. It's four years. As with most things in life, I scraped by and managed to get mm. the kind of minimum grades necessary to progress. And I did a, a postgraduate course in business studies, again, through lack of any real focus or clarity on what I wanted to do with my life. But I found certain modules of that very interesting, particularly marketing, which was one course. And at that point, when I graduated, I was in a better position because I did have some, you know, a business postgraduate as well as an engineering degree. And I got uh, involved in the in the kind of milk round of large organizations coming into Ireland to recruit onto their graduate schemes, one of which was Barclays, which was a very highly thought of graduate scheme. Now, again, I had no preconceptions about working in a bank. That was definitely a short term career for me. I didn't want to be a banker, but I joined the program nonetheless and came over to London in 1997. That was a very pivotal year, you know, coming from Ireland into London, not knowing anybody and going straight into working in a bank. And they make you, it was a four-year program. You worked, you know, as a cashier in the machine room, doing photocopying, you know, for literally your first year. Yeah, that took some getting used to. It was, it was that, real yeah. work. And, uh, <laughs> it wasn't the most glamorous work. I arrived in a three-piece suit in London, ready to go and do, you know, big corporate banking. And then I was straight into pulling out signature cards in the Baker Street branch. And I was like, oh, right, this is work. <laughs> this isn't quite as much fun as I'd hoped. But I think the graduate program itself was a bit of a, you know, that was kind of a good landing point because you had a lot of other people just like you who are in the same situation. And you came together every three or four weeks for training and so on. And then you have this fantastic network of of young people who are, you know, were great to hang out. And it was a huge amount of fun as well. And London, let's face it, you know, you're in your early 20s in London. It's not a bad place to be. The only problem is I had no money, uh, like most young people in London. And therefore, it's brilliant if you have money to spend, uh, which I clearly didn't. <laughs> But it was fine. You know, after the first couple of months, I started to really enjoy work. You get to work as a manager in a branch. So you do all the kind of jobs. And that, again, when you're 22 years old, you know nothing about banking and people are coming in and screaming at you because they've lost their debit card or you posted their checkbook to the wrong address is quite a daunting thing but also a brilliant you know learning uh, exercise because you know that's real life that's the front line and I think with all my colleagues who came through the same experience I, I still am very close to them now I married one of them so uh, that worked out quite well <laughs> yep. uh, you know we all feel like that part of our career was so valuable in terms of just understanding the mechanics of frontline work. So when you are in a, you know, in a managerial role, uh, like I am today, you don't lose what it means to have to deal with angry customers from nine o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, it's hard. So, I, you know, whenever I join a new organization, I've been through a fair few, I try and spend as much time with the frontline in those first weeks and months. I know everybody says that's a great thing to do, but mm. I'm not sure everybody does it as much as they talk about it. Mm. But just doing the call listening, the branch visiting, 
you know, I probably get 70% of my ideas from those exchanges. So it's something I try and keep up and make sure that you have the discipline to keep doing, mm. to stay in touch with what's happening at the front line. Mm. So that was the early part of Barclays. I, I, again, like most people coming to London, I had an idea that I'd be here for six months and then I'd go back to Ireland. And that's always been in the back of my mind. Mm. Uh, but that was 20 years ago, 22 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and I obviously ended up staying. So I did 11 years of Barclays in the end. I found my way into marketing in sort mm. of the, the third or fourth year. And that for me was then, you know, banking, I, I was okay, you know, it was all right. But once I discovered marketing, you know, the kind of lights went on for me. You know, that was certainly the thing that I'm probably the best at doing and the thing that I enjoy doing most. So that feels like, you know, career-wise, I think a lot of people spend their careers not necessarily getting to do the thing that they really want to do. And that's really sad. And I think I'm quite lucky that I found my way into marketing. There was an opportunity for me to get into it. Yeah, I've definitely learned on the job. I think I have a team of 40 upstairs and I'm the only person with no marketing marketing qualifications. You know, that's lucky for me. I'm not sure a graduate of today would be able to do that. But, yeah. uh, you know, I learned through attachments in the brand team, in the direct marketing team. I worked at Barclay Card for a couple of years yeah. when we sponsored the premiership and we were, you know, a really high-end investment brand. You know, it was, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So by the time I left Barclays in 2008, I felt like I had a lot of the groundwork to go on and be a marketing leader, a head of marketing, or even a CMO one day. But in my haste to get out of Barclays, I I was kind of looking around. I wasn't quite sure. I hadn't been in the job market before. I'd been at one organization the whole time. And I ended up moving next door to HSBC. So we were out <laughs> in Canary Wharf at the time. And I thought, wow, fantastic brand. Staying in the banking pond. <laughs> most admired brand in, in financial services. I think that was good to give me some perspective of a different organization. It probably wasn't the move that I should have made at that time. Because I found after the first six months, I was kind of running into quicksand again. I was in a huge rush to make changes, to make my mark, to do things differently. And that was just the wrong organization to come in and try and shake it all up and do everything different at that point in time. Bear in mind, it's 2008. So start of the financial crisis, HSBC is in a much better position because it has played a conservative line for the last couple of years versus other banks that had really, you know, gone aggressively after subprime lending and taken risks all over the place. So me coming in and saying, right, let's take some risks, didn't go down particularly well in, in that uh, environment, understandably so. I, you know, I ended up getting fairly frustrated. I couldn't move things as quickly as I wanted to. It was also the first role that was pure B2B, which at the time I kind of had mixed feelings about. I thought, well, this is good to do an attachment in B2B. So again, if I want to be a CMO one day, that, that'll add a string to my bow. What I didn't know is that that's where long-term my career was going to end up. But I certainly feel since then, my appetite for B2B has changed completely. I mm. now feel like it's at the forefront of marketing. Whereas back then it was, you know, you wanted to be in consumer and brand. How do you feel it's differentiated to being B2B? I think I think B2B marketing has evolved enormously and you now have this interesting skill of trying to marry digital marketing where so much of B2B is now with getting the best out of a sales team um, and most B2B organizations will have an element of you know frontline sales telephony field operators and so on and what I'm finding is that those are quite different, but the really good B2B marketers will marry the two and also bring digital marketing into the field. That's something that since I was at RBS in 2015, we really started to get into how should a traditional seller become relevant in a digital world? So how does content play for somebody who is out there selling corporate banking? Uh, you know, what should they be doing on LinkedIn? What tools are available to them? How should they be out there prospecting, but saving leads in a digital way that marketing can then follow up on? And that, you know, they're very diverse skills that you need in B2B. You often have more pressurized stakeholder situations because 
you're running business marketing from everything from small business right up to large corporates. That's very different. You're going to have different stakeholders. You've got a really diverse marketing mix. If we compare things at American Express, our consumer business, which is you know bigger in terms of marketing spend, it's generally above the line creative to drive digital acquisition. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now, there's a lot in that, obviously, but that's largely what they're doing. Compared to B2B, we are definitely doing that too because mm-hmm. that's uh, the highest growth part of our acquisition model while still maintaining digital content, events, uh, above the line, direct marketing, telephony marketing. We have five different telemarketing organizations on the books at any one time. You're running challenger models and so on and so on and so on. So in terms of headspace, there's an awful lot going on when you're in B2B and they all have a part to play. I have found my last couple of incidences of being on the market looking for a role there are five B2B marketing jobs for every one consumer job. There's mm. just tons more opportunity. And mm. it seems to have grown exponentially in the last couple of years. Mm. So jump a little bit fast forward. Today you are at American Express and you just talked about that you're very lucky that you get to do what you like. Does that impact your leadership style here? Do you try and encourage your leaders to help the people enjoy what they do? And in what way would you do that if it's a part of it? Oh, 100%. I mean, it's, it's often used sentiment about how much time we spend at work compared mm-hmm. to home. So, you know, if you're not enjoying the technical work that you do, the environment you work in, the team who are around you, then, or you're not learning. That's the other thing I often say to people, you know, if they are thinking about a job move or going for promotion or applying internally for a job or externally, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing whether they're enjoying their work or not. And mm-hmm. Most of them hopefully are enjoying their work because mm-hmm. that's the types of teams yeah, I like hopefully. to run. Yeah. Uh, but then the question becomes, are you learning? Are you learning technical skills or are you learning from your current line manager? Because uh, you can learn a heck of a lot on both of those things. Mm-hmm. But if the answer to that is no, then go for it. You know, external move, internal move. You should be thinking about that. Yeah, yeah look, so I, I feel like I brought a lot to the role I have now in terms of leadership, mainly through seeing very different types of leaders in in the different places that I've worked and learning as much from the poor leaders as Mm. I have from the good leaders. Mm. So to kind of look back a little bit, uh, I was at HFPC for two years, then came the opportunity to go and be CMO at an organization, Mm. a company called Money Corp, who were an FX company. They do a lot of kind of bureau de change at the airports, but most of their business is private clients and, and corporate money transfer. That was an eye-opener because I'd never done that before. I'd, I'd never been the marketing leader. And then suddenly you have to do everything. And I also, it was the first chance to go in and, and lead a kind of a sizable team. So it was a team of about 15, 16. At the point of arrival, they were pretty disenfranchised. They hadn't had a marketing leader for a little bit of time. And marketing was just a, you know, it was being dragged along by the business versus marketing really leading strategically. You know, that was when I first had to really use uh, leadership techniques that I'd been taught at Barclays, but never given the team to really use those tools. And now I was like a kid in a sweet shop. I had all of this learning and knowledge about brands, about leadership, about digital marketing, that at last there was nobody in my way to actually set a strategy and get on and do it. And it was an incredibly exciting, productive two years. Mm. We completely reinvented the brand. We completely rebuilt all our digital channels. We bid for new partnerships. We won the tender at Heathrow, which we'd never won before in the history of the organization. We won the full tender at Gatway. So it was just an incredible period of success and turbulence because as that success was happening, (laughs) the business was completely reforming. New CEO came in, the business was sold and bought. And you just had this constant change at Exco level, which I was kind of eventually part of, which um, ended up becoming 
slightly overwhelming. Like it took over the job. There was just so much transition and change happening. And so I bounced out of there and went back into banking at, at RBS for a couple of years. But by that stage, I was a more seasoned leader. I had a mm. lot of leadership techniques. And then I went into a team of kind of 20, 30, again, back into B2B marketing in an organization that was changing rapidly as well. Mm. So this was 2012, coming out of the financial crisis. RBS mm. was not in great shape. It was completely uh, taxpayer owned. And uh, really, it was kind of struggling to get back on top. So again, you know, interesting period, four different leaders at RBS, lots to learn from, some good, some not so good. Mm. I went from there into insurance, uh, worked as uh, a company called Unum in employee benefits insurance. I was part of their Exco as well, working very closely with the CEO, you know, a larger than life character that, uh, again, I learned a lot from. So by the time I landed in American Express uh, last year, Again, a team that had been leaderless for a little while, a little disenfranchised, marketing being dragged along by the business, so it sounded very familiar. Poor relationship with sales. That again is something I see time and again when you come Mm. in as a marketing leader. You know, marketing feel they can do the job better than sales. Sales Mm. feel that marketing are no use whatsoever. They just produce brochure wear. I mean, that is just chronically poor situation to inherit. And yet one that I see almost every time I come into a job. This is probably the third or fourth pass when I've come into a marketing team that looks like that. I feel like... Number one, you've got to get everybody moving again. And uh, certainly in American Express, and this was a little bit more complicated because I had teams in nine different countries. I was overseeing Europe, and yet Mm. the situation was the same in in every one of those countries. You know, there's a lot to be said for a clean, simple strategy to just Mm. bind it all together again. And when I came to American Express, it was very clear that EMEA as a region was underperforming versus, you know, JAPA or Asia PAC Mm. uh, and Latin America as well. And that we had a heck of a lot to learn from those two organizations. Mm. So forget about learning externally for Winman. It's what can we do internally that's being done brilliantly elsewhere that we should be doing as well. Mm. So that part of the strategy became catch up. Mm. And it was three things. So nothing more complicated than that. I generally hate PowerPoint as well. (laughs) So uh, over the years, I've just got absolutely fed up with producing PowerPoint. Mm. I can't really look at PowerPoint anymore. I'm so PowerPointed out. It washes over my head. I I agree. There's a saying actually saying like any good presentation can be killed in PowerPoint. No, yeah. Like, yeah, all right. <laughs> we, we park our brains when we start doing PowerPoint sometimes. Yeah. You know, it's all in bullet points then. <laughs> absolutely. You ask somebody to go away and think about something and they immediately go and start moving bullets around a page. And you're thinking, well, you're not thinking creatively anymore. No. You're just, just doing fonts. You know, forget yeah. that. Come and talk to me yeah, about exactly. your idea and let's move it from there. And also I find you know, verbally speaking through an idea is a better way of communicating a lot of times. Mm. I spend a lot of time looking at good business communicators to see why were they so good? Why is this speaker so impactful versus Mm. that speaker? And a lot of times, I mean, they're not using aids like PowerPoint. They're not using text on a screen behind them as a kind of crutch, Mm. which is a distraction anyway. Mm. What they're doing is focusing on on the spoken word and they're really engaging with their audience and trying to get that point across. Mm. And they're using stories beautifully to weave their points together. I thought, you know, I need to get better at that. This is about 10 years ago. You know, I've focused on it a lot. I try and do as many speaking engagements as I can to keep me sharp on that. But by and large, inside the organization, I we haven't banned PowerPoint because Amex loves PowerPoint. But my team generally, I encourage them to go along. And I mean, it's not a substitute for not preparing. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. You, In fact, you have to prepare more because you haven't got bullet points to rely on. But you'll deliver a better message if mm-hmm. you can really work on that. And you have the faith in your ability to speak to your presentation rather than just click your presentation. Mm. Anyway, slightly off topic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there are a number of cultural things that I like to bring with me into an organization. One is a, a clean, simple strategy. And I, you know, one of the things I feel very proud about at American Express is, you know, having come into this organization 18 months ago, having a team spread across Europe, 
they all get the strategy and they got it straight away. It was three points on catch up and it was three points on take the lead. And take the lead was more about what ideas are going on outside the organization that we can bring in. Mm. Some of that's about social media. Some of that's about digital content. Some of it's about adopting, you know, the very latest tools to give us an edge that we just weren't doing internally at Amex. Mm. This organization is fantastic. We do a lot of things really, really well. I think one of our blind spots is uh, what's going on outside the company, you know, mm. keeping ahead of industry trends, ahead of competition mm. in terms of, you know, keeping in touch with customers. And that was something I really wanted to address. Mm. And it was funny because when I came in and said that to people, they were like, yes, we, we mm. are. That's where we need to get better. So people are very receptive when you come in and say, look, I just think we need to open the blinds on the windows a little mm. bit more and find out what's going out. Yeah, it makes sense. So that strategy really kind of connected with people. Yeah. And then I think once you have that and you have the courage of your convictions to go and see people and explain it to them face to face, because that's mm. a very important part of getting out there and spending time with my teams in Paris or in Milan or in Madrid or wherever. People, you know, pivoted immediately on it. It was incredible. Within a month, they were now coming back to be saying, here's what we're doing on catch up. Here's what we're doing on take the lead. We, we get completely what you're saying. And, you know, they, they, English wasn't their first language, you know, and we speak in all kinds of mechanical acronyms mm. in, in Amex. And yet they got this strategy instantly. Mm. And that seemed to have a real galvanizing effect on the team generally. Morale suddenly starts moving. People feel like they have purpose in their work. We did a little bit of restructuring just to, nothing too dramatic, but just to clean up the lines of responsibility so people understood what was their job and what was the person mm. next in the job. So what did you discover when you started pulling the blinds up a little bit and looking out of the organization? Was there some key things you discovered that you then are taking into the considerations of the work you're doing today? 100%, yeah. Our challenge on the B2B side in American Express, in most of the markets I'm in, Everybody knows who we are. Everybody knows American Express. But if you're a small business startup, you're like, well, why would I need an American Express card? I have to pay money for them. They're expensive. Yes. Um, that, that's not a brand for me. So it's this low brand relevance. And yet we know about that. We know that's a problem. And we weren't really on any broadcast channels. We didn't have a Twitter presence on B2B. We did very little through Facebook. LinkedIn was something that was generally, you know, something that we were told to stay away from because corporate affairs didn't like it and so on. So I found that remarkable. And also not just that we could talk about our own stuff, but that we could listen. How can you know what customers want if you're not listening on Twitter to what's going on? Mm. Twitter is so important for SMEs. It's where the conversation happens. It's where they complain about stuff. It's where they champion their own stuff. It's where they network. It's been a super important channel for SMEs in the UK for the last eight nine years, and yet we weren't we weren't even on it. So, just get a presence moving. Listen to what customers are saying. Respond to things. Be spontaneous. Be reactive. This is so important, not just in B 2 B, but you know, in the modern age. That was important. I think the other thing we found was, you know, content is is key and nobody will say anything else in, in the current environment. I think we all talk about how important content is. Very few organizations are actually doing it right. 90% are just churning rubbish and that nobody yeah, reads. <laughs> um, I know, yeah. yeah. If you're not out there, if you're not listening, if you're not connecting with organizations, you have no idea what content you're supposed to be producing. Mm. And I'm sure and I hope that anybody who's listening to this podcast who is in marketing will recognize this point that you just, there's just just this massive urgency to create content. It doesn't matter what it is, just get the content out there. But what you really need to do is step back and probably spend, I don't know, 60, 80% of your time listening, mm -hmm. being out there, going to events, 
meeting with Facebook, meeting with Google, meeting with Twitter, finding out what type of content you need to be producing. And I, that certainly changed for me in the last four or five years. We had a very kind of article and thought leadership-led strategy at RBS, which felt right at the time. I think thought leadership is the most overused term in the world. I'm fed up to the back teeth of hearing it. Um, you know, our ability to pay attention to stuff is, is decreasing by the minute. You know, I think at the last organization that I went to listen to, you know, they're talking about three seconds now. If you don't engage your audience, then they move on. doesn't matter if they're a CEO, a CFO, probably shorter because they're busier. Mm. Um, so our content strategy has changed completely. But mm. a lot of that has been linked to getting out there, spending a lot of time with Facebook, spending a lot of time with LinkedIn, mm. seeing what works, what doesn't work. And also being grown up enough to know that other organizations know this better than us. We're not going to strike gold on content because mm. we worked it out ourselves. It's because we went and sat with a company that really got this and we said, mm. okay, show us the way and partner with us and uh, have skin in the game and we'll mm. do it together. That's yeah. critical. Mm. So knowing who your partners are, who you need to spend time with, whether it's a marketing agency, whether it's Facebook, it's so important. And it can bring inspiration into your team as well. You know, if you have a team that haven't really spent time with these organizations, we spent uh, last Monday, I took the whole UK team, we went and spent half a day with Google, partly to learn about, uh, you know, how they do things and how we can partner, but also just to see their office. Mm. It was cool. Yeah. You know, never cool. mind like, you know, football tables and tables. They've moved on from that. Yeah. There was uh, cinemas and recording studios and 3D printing workshops and all kind of manner of things, which was cool. But there was also a message there. It was, mm. you know, you guys are going to be leaders one day. This is how you set up an environment, an organization for creativity, for yeah. creative thinking. And their mantra, you know, when we talked to their cultural head was, you know, give people freedom and they'll amaze you. Mm. Um, by that they meant, you know, you don't tie them to a nine to five in a dingy office. Mm. Give them the access to facilities, to things that will broaden their horizons and um, allow them to mix with their colleagues from different departments. Mm. And you'll be amazed at what comes back. Mm. And I really buy into that. Mm. I've seen that firsthand in, in my experience yeah. in other companies. Do you, do you think that's something you'll start implementing in this office? as well completely well it reminds me one of the things when i came in here i talked about that difference between marketing and sales not necessarily working together and like the most simple thing you've got to do is put marketing within sales i, I don't mean organizationally you just need to make them go and sit there mm. um at a previous company that i worked at that was a problem coming in and marketing and sales were on different floors and they you know they did not like each other there was open warfare between the two and we were going through an office redesign at the time which was generally good it was open spaces and it was all very modern and, and cool but we said look let's put sales and marketing in the same floor but it's also 100% hot desk. So you can't just go and sit with sales every day. You literally, you're going to end up some days sitting surrounded by marketing colleagues, even though you work in sales and vice versa. And I push and encourage that. And I would come out of my office and go and sit right in the sales desk on some days. And it would really annoy them because they didn't want me sitting there. They wanted their mates. And yet I got brilliant feedback and ideas and I could understand who was struggling with what and what pitches were going on and where they needed help. So I was going back and briefing my marketing guys to say, look, that's what sales are doing. They've got that broker meeting next week. You know, let, that's what we need to get on top mm. of. And so here, when I came to Amex, the same issue uh, applied. I said, right, I want half of you sitting with sales, with compliance, with IT, with legal for half of your week. So we reduced the number of desks that were available in marketing. So they literally yeah. had to go and sit elsewhere. Go make friends. Yeah, yeah you've got to make yeah. friends. And it links to an anecdote I had from Google, actually. I don't know if, if this is true or not, but it was a brilliant idea. Mm. I was visiting a Google office 10 years ago and it was, you know, it was very cool even back then. But I was queuing up for lunch and the lunch queue was enormous. Now they do free food, so you can understand why people all eat in the office. But, it, you know, we were 15 minutes in the lunch queue and I was talking to a VP from Google and I said, kind of jokingly, you know, your office is cool, but, you know, what about this lunch? 
lunch queue. This isn't great. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, it's deliberate. He said, we're trying to create, you know, little bottlenecks in the organization where people from different departments are forced to be together. And he said, it, it goes back to an idea where we had, uh, you know, someone from marketing and someone from engineering in a sandwich queue in Palo Alto. And, uh, you know, out of that came, I can't remember what it was, Google Maps, something huge. And he said, because one was working on a problem that the other one could solve. And if they'd gone back and sat in their respective teams, they'd never have met. Yeah, yeah. So he said, you know, that's why we give all of this kind of free stuff in the organization, you know, music rooms and so on. Often they're not used that much, but what does happen is you get a band forming out of someone from marketing, someone from sales, someone from IT. And, you know, those are really important networks to make a, an organization work fast, even a big organization. Yeah, yeah. And I totally get it. Whether or not the lunch, I think the lunch queue is just slow. I don't think that's deliberate. <laughs> this but, is not the time. I'm hangry. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I was like, yeah, that sounds great, but I am starving. Um, but, you know, it, it was such a great example of, you know, create those bottlenecks, disrupt yeah. the organization where people have to go to a different place, um, yeah, yeah. sit with different colleagues. You know, that's how big organizations actually start to work quickly. Yeah, good. So you talked a bit about doing more listening were the things you figured you were doing wrong and then are there any of those findings that you're now implementing into a core strategy and what does that look like today yeah for sure i think it's a combination of things there's listening at the front line mm. um which when i came here i spent a fair bit of time down in brighton at our call centers and mm. um, we have a, a heavy reliance on self-generated leads so you have b2b guys who are actually just on google looking for companies to sell to and they'll spend a fair amount of time researching that lead before they make that first call mm. and when they do make the call then they're reliant on a script and they're hopeful to get through to the decision maker <laughs> and this sounds bonkers right it sounds like something from you know 30 years ago and yet i would say in financial services, it's how most B2B organizations still work, which is kind of frightening. So immediately you think, well, this can't be right. And, and at the same time, we're spending millions on data, which the guys aren't using. They just, they don't feel like it's the big fish. It's lots of small leads, which are a little bit out of date. Or even if you do make a sale, it's a small sale. And like most salespeople, they are going after that big sale that will hit their target for the year and then they can relax. And that's a hard habit to break. But, you know, once you see that and you realize some of the issues with your data and you go and you look at that program and, uh, you know, that prompts thoughts that you actually need to partner with different organizations. So, you know, one of the issues from that was that if you buy data, it's going to be static, right? You buy it from Experian or Dun Bradstreet and so on. You know, they will do their own thing to keep that data up to speed. But if I use me in as example, my phone number is incorrect everywhere because I move around. I don't even know what my phone number is, right? <laughs> um, the only place my details are correct are on social media. So LinkedIn, I work for American Express and my job title is correct. You know, I've written a few things about the size of my team and things like that. Because someday I might want to get employed and LinkedIn is my shop window. Mm. So that's dynamic data because users are keeping it up to date. And yet so few organizations really think about data in that way. So that was a, that was a big listening point early on that led me to go and spend a lot of time at LinkedIn. And then you start learning where LinkedIn are going and you think, well, hang on, they're going places. And we need to hitch our trailer to organizations that are going to crack this in the future. And I would say the same of other social media uh, outlets. I think Facebook, I, I learned a lot. I had some preconceptions about Facebook coming in here that mm. I didn't think they were going to be quite as important as maybe some others. And actually, I found through marketing, through their platform, just how sophisticated the targeting is. And if your goal is lead generation, you can get somewhere quite quickly with Facebook. And provided you're in for the long haul and you're ready to refine and test and accept that, 
what you think is creatively great might not necessarily be the most effective. So you have to kind of park all of your marketing preconceptions about, you know, great creative and what really disrupts and engages and let Facebook lead you a little bit there. Mm. For example, card art is by far the most effective uh, creative <laughs> for generating leads on Facebook. Card art's not very exciting. It's a picture of a card and yet it works. Mm. And a card with big text and loud noise and slightly speeded up works better than one that does and so on and so on. But like we would never have figured this out, right? That's not the marketing world that I grew up in. And yet you plug into the platform and it starts testing and you you learn all kinds of different things. Mm. Yeah, it's just the importance. Frontline, right, mm. listen, but then go and like figure out who your smart partners are mm. and spend time with them mm. and uh, um, you know, sometimes that's a marketing agency. I've had some incredibly fruitful and successful marketing agency partnerships in my time. The smaller agencies always have a part to play. I mm. think if you come into a company and you're working with giant agencies only, then you've got a problem. Get some small ones on the books. Get some hungry agencies who are prepared to take risks. Mm. Yeah, it's a bit like the Google thing. Give them freedom and they'll amaze you. And yeah, it's just it's keeping your external antenna up at all times, I think, is uh, yeah. would so- be the advice. On the other side of things, where do you find it's challenging today and where do you find yourself struggling in the space of marketing? Prioritization is really hard. There are too many things to do at all times. I've spent a fair bit of time at marketing conferences and this seems to be something that everybody just vigorously nods at. You know, if you have a large number of internal stakeholders, they will all want you to do it slightly differently as per what they're trying to achieve. And you have this external landscape, you know, through platforms that I talked about where they're evolving so fast, there is always another five things that you can test and try and do differently and shift budget into. So how on earth do you know what the right things are to do? Bearing in mind, you can do 10 of them well and you can do 50 of them really badly. That's a constant challenge. And everyone will tell you something different because they have a slightly vested interest. So it's having the headspace to keep stepping back from it and go, right. What are my goals? What do I need to do this year? What does the team need to achieve? What's going to get us there, but like get us there next year? In which case we need to just schedule that for next year, like park it, take it out. That's really hard because once you're in the weeds of your job, like anybody, you're busy as hell, right? You never have the time to stop and think and replot. It's something I encourage my teams to do. You know, both strategically and tactically. Mm. Come in on a Monday morning. Do not open your email, right? Write the 20 things that you've got in your mind. Go to a cafe if you need to. Get out of the office. But spend an hour doing that. I mean, honestly, just Mm. just don't start work till 10. And then when you've got them down, plot them. Mm. Urgency versus importance. Mm. What's high urgency, high importance? That means you've got to do it, right? Mm. High urgency, low importance. Give it to somebody else. Low urgency, schedule it. Do it Mm. Friday. Do it next week. Do it next year. And then somehow get rid of five of them, right? Five of them will be low urgency, low importance, but you feel like you need to do them because somebody asked you, but kill them because Mm. we all have too much to do. So prioritization, I would say, is the number one. And this isn't just a marketing thing, right? This is everything. But I think marketing, because of the changing landscape, because of the pressure on a CMO, you know, there is so much to do all the time and it's all new and it keeps coming at you. So if you're not a good person who can ruthlessly prioritize, you're in trouble. But it's finding the headspace to do it. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think makes American Express and MX a successful brand today? That's a good question. I'll be really honest here, right? I joined the company last year. It took me a while to understand why people were prepared to pay for a product which was, in my eyes, free elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a payment card, largely. Mm -hmm. Most of our products are charge cards, so they're not even a credit card. So it's not about getting access to funding. And yet we charge for our gold card and we charge for our platinum card. And I thought... How is this going to work long term for small businesses where, you know, it's not about status for them. So I couldn't really get my head around it. 
you know, this strategically, the move seemed to be to create even more higher status cards. So, you know, to refresh our platinum card, turn it metal, give it more benefits, but charge more for it as well. And I felt like this was not a good strategy. And over time, I started to understand why businesses loved it and what was going on with these products. For starters, we have a rewards program, which, you know, I'm not typically a rewards guy. I'm fairly skeptical about rewards. I'm like, well, it can't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, up until recently, I didn't have a personal card for American Express because a lot of my friends had it and they all advocated for it. They said, you need to get this. You need to get the British Airways miles. It's absolutely brilliant. You get a companion voucher. I was like, I get you, but I'd rather have my own money because, you know, I have to pay for this card. But I joined Amex. I was like, right, I better try. I better see what this is all about. So I did. And, you know, you start to rack up the rewards quite quickly and it's mm. gamified. And you think, oh, well, I like these. And I just got a load of money off a flight, which actually paid for my card fee. So the more I get now, it's, it's kind of all benefit. It's all plus. I've already paid for the card. And then I got addicted to looking at the app and seeing how much my Abios points were growing. And then I got a companion voucher through the post. And I was like, OK, how does this work? And it's a free business first class flight to anywhere in the world it's just two for one so if you buy one you get one free and i was like i've never gone on a holiday with my wife in business class we're gonna do this yeah and uh, (laughs) and then another one came the next year and i was like oh my god this product is fantastic Mm. yes you pay money for it but if you work it properly this really pays back Mm. and then i got it that business is no different small businesses the ones i spoke to who had the product said we will never have another product we absolutely love our amex product because we get it we put everything through it. We pay all our suppliers through it. So we earn really high reward points. So we bought a whole bunch of printers for the office uh, last month using just Amex reward points. And it didn't cost us anything because all we did was switch from paying our suppliers through our bank mm. to paying them on a charge card. That's it. Mm. Didn't cost us anything. And we put all our supplementary cards through it. This business might have had 20 different card holders in the business. They're all paying their suppliers using one Amex account. You get a ton of membership rewards. I'm like... Why aren't more businesses doing this? Mm. And then and then you're really happy because you're like, I work in a company with a product that is brilliant. Mm. I've spent a lot of my career selling bad products. And that's hard when you're marketing to try and find a reason why people should that's buy these bad products. Yeah, 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 but it's your job, so you have to do it. Here, I was like, this is brilliant. This is excellent. All we need to do is educate people. Now, that's easier said than done. The message is complex and people see the price and they say, no, no way. Or, you know, they think that it's not accepted and that's a misnomer. You know, it is accepted uh, very broadly these days. That's been a strategy of Amex for quite a while. The other thing is it's a brilliant product and I'm on, you know, the Amex soapbox at the moment. It's flexible for businesses. So if you use a card to pay your supplier, your supplier gets paid straight away. Mm. You have two months to pay, mm. right? They're charge cards. You have 54 days grace. So it's cash flow. Cash flow is essential for businesses. It's their oxygen, right? You want a business? Mm-hmm. Cash flow is pretty important, right? You need to get paid for the work you do. And it's helpful if you get paid straight away. Mm. So, you know, if you're paying somebody using one of the products, your supplier gets paid straight away. So they're off your back. They're not chasing you, right? That's less work. That's mm. great. You have two months to pay. That's mm. Most businesses will bite your arm off. They're like, that works. Now, if you get membership rewards as well, that's the brand, right? So I'm, I, you know, I exist in the B2B world, but that's if your service is good and Amex is very, very good, uh, we have travel benefits. So it's very much, uh, that's probably the part of the job that keeps me most excited. Mm. You know, um, the air miles, the lounge access. Mm. We're solving a problem of travel being painful for most people. Mm. Right, you're taking a business flight. Everyone thinks business travel is glamorous. Most of it is 4 a.m., alarm call going to Luton to get on an EasyJet flight to go somewhere. Right, yeah. It's not fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apologies to anyone from EasyJet yeah. listening, uh, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and so, you know, air travel and, and air travel, I have three small children as well. Air travel with children, really not fun. So, you know, going to airports is not fun anymore. 
And that's where I think American Express is a nice brand because we're tackling that mm. particular problem for people. Where if you have one of our products, if you have our platinum product, you don't touch the sides of an airport. You just go straight to the lounge mm. and, you know, you get a free upgrade or you get your bags, you know, whatever. If you've got your Avios points, if you understand how the products work and you fly with one mm. airline, you're on their exec program, like life becomes easy. You start liking going to airports again. In yeah. fact, I was getting on a flight last week and I was having a particularly nice, pleasant time in the lounge. And it was, I didn't want to get on the plane. I was like, I just, <laughs> so, I'll stay yeah. in the airport. I'm happy here. Um, so I like that we're tackling a real pain point. A lot of organizations and brands aren't. And that's yeah. hard yards yeah, when you're marketing. Yeah. They're like, just tell people about better products. They're brilliant. Yeah. They're not. They're not fixing anything. But it's interesting, right? When you then on one hand mentioned that the data shows that people love the art on the card, but on the other hand, you're actually solving a really important issue. So it's a matter of like, okay, how do we go from art on cards to communicating something that's actually really important and a problem solver totally. in a in a constructive way through our channels, right? Totally. Like if you're in marketing, you have to have that level of believing in the product. Mm. You know, I think if you know people are listening and they ask themselves really how excited they are about the product that they're selling, mm. you know, if the answer is not very, then time for a new job, mm. right? Go to an organization where you would buy the product and actually you'd advocate for it at a dinner party with your mates. Mm. And you and also you can tell them which which is the best product mm. for them, right? You know, you've got to have a simple product set. So it's energizing when you believe in the product and you have it yourself and you're like, I love this. It's yeah. brilliant. I, I I feel like I can sell this. Definitely. So I look into the crystal ball a few years ahead. How do you think the organization and the way you work will change in, in terms of marketing? Yeah. I'll say something painfully obvious here, um, <laughs> but it's the right answer. Like there is no other answer. You know, how much we do through digital channels, through social media is going to grow incredibly quickly. And, you know, this... This isn't a surprising thing. You know, we were talking about this 20 years ago. And yet that transition is still happening. You know, we have found so much of our business now comes purely through digital. And we're B2B, right? Mm. Uh, certainly the part that I run. That that, you know, we're now in the really serious ramp up of that. We we get so much of our acquisition volume through social media, through digital channels. You know, so many of our members now just engage with us through the app. They don't really have a, a relationship outside of that. Again, that's not that exciting or different. And yet... That's the age that we're in at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to get excited by different things, by voice search, by visual search now, which is a thing, you mm -hmm. know, Google say that that's the age of search that we're moving into. And that's correct. And you've got to keep your mind on that. But if I spend half my day worrying about voice search, then, you know, I'm not going to do a very good job. And so you've kind of got to do the two things. I think the other thing that I would say again, with a marketing hat on um, that I've seen at American Express, which wasn't necessarily at other organizations, is that marketing is sales. So every single person of my team, whether they're in Europe, UK or wherever, has an acquisition target on their head, right? So they have to get a certain number of cards or a certain charge volume in every year to hit their target. And they either meet their target or they don't. And that's what their rating depends on. That's sales, right? Mm. That's uh, that's not how people in marketing are used to working. It has to be that way. Mm. And that's good for marketing because it means you're either, you're red or you're green, right? You know where you stand. But it also means that you you properly contribute to a business, right? You're financial. You know, if you're a CMO, you need to have this skill, but you'll be a big player in the organization. You're no longer just the events and collateral guy, right? You're you're potentially the new CEO. And our consumer business, there is no sales, right? That marketing is the business. Certainly the learning point for me is I only want to work in organizations like that going forward. You know, there has to be this commercial accountability. It gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, 
my two-year-old gets me out of bed in the morning, but then, then I start thinking about that. It energizes me, and I see the same effect on my entire team. Like, we live and die by our scorecard, but it motivates you. You've really got skin in the game. Mm. And that's the way marketing has to be. So I would say the vast majority of organizations today in financial services are not that way. I mm. think marketing are just a, just a service provider for the business. But it's not getting best out of your marketing, right? Mm. You know, if you're listening and, and, you know, you run an organization, now is the time to make the change. You mm. need commercially strong marketeers. You need people who are on the hook for the P&L. You need acquisition targets. You need revenue targets. And marketing will thank you for it. It might be painful, <laughs> yeah. but that's where they need they to will. be. Yeah. yeah, well, on that note, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. No problem. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Bosses for Breakfast are hosted by me and produced by Studio Roo. If you like our show and want more exciting stories like this, don't forget to follow us. You can get all episodes for free on any of your preferred podcast services. <laughs>